This week on Inside Marketing, I'll be talking to the author of Tarzan Economics. We'll be discussing digital disruption and asking how businesses are prepared as they face into their own Napster moment. We'll look to the music industry who had a 20-year head start facing this problem and we'll see what we can learn only on this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing. I'm joined today by Will Page, author of Tarzan Economics and former chief economist of Spotify. Welcome, Will. Thanks so much for having me on. No problem. Thanks a million for joining me. So um, I, I read your book, Tarzan Economics. It's a brilliant read. Um, I mean, there's a lot in it, but there's a recurring theme. We can talk about Tarzan Economics and what that concept means in a second. But like, there's one thing that jumped out at me, which was we seem to be living in a world where we are, we are data rich and insight poor. And there's loads of brilliant examples of that on how data... Sometimes we can see what we want from data or and we can miss what's, what we can't measure, which again, is re, re, there's brilliant examples in the book. I just love it. So I'd urge anybody who's listening, even if you're not into economics or an economist by trade or by schooling, it's a great read. It's just a really, really, really great read. So um, Appreciate that. I'd urge you to pick it up. But there's lots of stuff about how data can, can be not representative of usage or attention or engagement or, or how in some instances data can correlate and it be complete nonsense. Um, so... But this theme of, of music, as I said in the intro, you were former chief economist for Spotify, so you have a lot of knowledge and insight into music. And music is it's a great industry to look at because, first of all, everyone's into music, first and foremost. It's not, it's mm-hmm. not that niche. So everyone, whatever your thing is, you're into music. That's what people are into. But the key thing about music as an industry was it was, it was first to be disrupted. It had a 20-year head start in terms of facing what you called its Napster moment. So um, it's fair to say it has rebounded and recovered. So let's start there. Why do you think the music industry is a great benchmark just for other industries generally? Well, I think you mentioned Napster moment. I think as we come out of the pandemic, there's a lot of other industries staring at their Napster moment. The, the pandemic's accelerated change, and essentially the the gazillion dollar question we're all asking just now is how much of that change sticks when we get back to some type of normal. But the, the head start we've got in music of dealing with disruption, I think, really comes from understanding some of the words that we use. So yeah, let's take the word copyright, for example. When Napster happened, or over here in Europe, I think the more popular service was Winamp, essentially you know, kids being able to go onto the internet and find any song they wanted on demand and not have to mm. pay a penny for them. And you look at the word copyright, it stands for the right to control copying. Think about the word for mm. a second. So what happens to a business where well, the fundamental definition of what you stand for has been upended is what music experienced 20 years ago. The journey that we went on after that was 10 years of suffering and then the next 10 years arguably recovering and getting back to where we once were. I think that journey, that first to suffer, first to recover journey, offers a lot of lessons for others. And what I hope the book does is helps other industries, other individuals, other institutions avoid the suffering and get straight to the recovering. Avoid holding on to that mm. old vine for too long and reach out, have the confidence to reach out to that new vine. That is fundamentally at the heart of Tarzan Economics because um, I'd say I, I love the title. I was thinking Tarzan Economics, you've already got me. We didn't know what it was. And, you know, it makes sense. It, at its simplest terms, it's a concept of being afraid to let go of the vine that you're holding on to and reach for a new one, which, which you have to do to propel yourself forward. So thinking about the music industry, the vine, I suppose, that, that they were clinging to for dear life was pallet sales of CDs, as you as you were talking about. It was it was it was copies of things on pallets. That was what they counted. That's how they that's how success was measured. It wasn't about. I mean, even if you bought music and you know didn't listen to it or put it in your collection, it, it was a sale. That was the the industry benchmark. So, and the industry really struggled. I think uh, you had a really nice way of putting. I think you said the vine that they were asking to swing from was one of from analog dollars to digital dimes. And I get, I mean, I can totally understand because you see lots of businesses and maybe even traditional publishers with the same conundrum. So was it a case that they just couldn't get their head around or looking at the data and giving us the wrong information? So my, my point by that was, if you measure CD sales, yes, that's kind of a very different model than, say, a share of a subscription to Spotify. But actually, you made the point in the book, again, which was about, well, if you measured the royalty from a play on radio, well, that's a much less payoff to an artist than, say, even from Spotify. So I just so I understand, was the new Vine one of lower margin, but more people, so less from more? Was it a pure yeah. reach play? Was that the bit that they, the industry couldn't get its head around? So a couple of points to unpack here. So in our situation, I want to make this as transferable as possible to your audience here. Mm-hmm. In our situation... We were spending that first decade of disruption holding on to another old vine, a belief, if you want, that people, the kids especially, were going to come back and buying CDs that snapped your fingernails as you tried to open them or downloading from iTunes with DRM wrapped around it. 
We believed in this ownership model of music and we believed that would see us through. Now, my point as an economist, as a one-eyed man in the kingdom of the blind at that point, was just fewer and fewer people are doing this. So you might say, I want to hold on to an apology for a bit of a sexist term here, but £50 a month, man. I used to hear that term a lot, which is, why would I give up on £50 a month, man, buying CDs for £120 a year person subscribing to Spotify? It's a bad trade. It does, the, math, the maths don't add up. My point was fewer and fewer people were buying so not only was fewer and fewer people buying, but those who were buying were spending less and less. So when the majority of your population no longer engages in your product, the vast majority in the case of music, you have to optimize for reach, mm. getting to all of them as opposed to revenue, clinging on to some of them. And that was a switch that music made. Then moving into streaming, just real quickly, you mentioned a, a comparison. It is hard to this day. It is really hard for artists, songwriters, labels, publishers, analysts, commentators to understand the switch between the two. Yeah. You know, monetizing a transaction, got it, £10 sold. This is how the pieces of the pie are sort of allocated. And then you go to this crazy streaming model and it's a per stream figure. But if you think about streaming services, 70% of their cost of goods goes to rights holders. 70% of their revenue is out to rights holders. If you think about radio, it's about seven. You've got a model here which is about accessing music. Radio, arguably, is about accessing music. Radio gives you 7% of its revenue to the songwriters and the artists. Streaming gives 70 And that's just a very simple example of just looking at what this transition is doing for the business. So there's challenges, but now, uh, thanks to letting go of that old vine, thanks to embracing the streaming, we have a recovery that's the envy of many other media sectors, especially newspapers. Yeah, and there's a lot of learnings like in terms of the collective, whether we pool resources, and we, we'll talk about that in a second. But one thing that came out, which is, again, it's like these things, I always think it's it's a great point when it's obvious in, in hindsight. So I know this, we see it all the time, attention spans getting shorter, but that's quantifiable. We know people have shorter attention spans. I know that because I'm in the business trying to um, get people's attention in advertising. But it's happened in right. songs. What's happened, songs, songs have gotten shorter. Even the construct of a song has changed. So, you know, it's less about verse, chorus, verse. Like we get to the chorus quicker. A question, has that just happened organically or is the change, is the shortening of songs and the get straight to the chorus a function of the new digital economy where you, if you don't get, if people don't listen beyond 30 seconds, you don't get paid. So artists are just going, I can't afford a slow burn here to get into the, into the song because yeah. I'm not so, going to get so, paid. So I think for your audience, uh, my favorite example here, extremely apt here for this podcast, which is to take the Irish band U2 mm -hmm. and their song Where the Streets Have No Name possibly my favorite U2 song of all time. I mean, I think that reached out to Irish America and just gave everybody yeah. a sense of identity. It's a very powerful, emotional song. But when you play back that song, uh, it takes, now let me just get this right, two minutes, eight seconds before you hear Bono's voice. Yeah. So arguably one of the greatest rock bands in the history of planet Earth, arguably one of the greatest songs, and you have to wait two minutes, eight seconds before Bono's voice comes in. Now, I'll ask you, do you think today's millennials have got the patience to wait two minutes, eight seconds no. for the vocal line? No, absolutely not. So it's a stark reminder of just how things have changed. And by the way, if you take Lil Nas X, Old Town Road, I think that was fading out by two minutes, eight seconds. I think it closes right. at yeah. two minutes, 16. A lot of hits today are coming in under two minutes, 30. So yeah, we are seeing songs getting shorter and we are seeing courses being moved to the front. And we do know that the tail that wags the dog, the business that affects the show, not the show that affects the business, is at play here. You only get paid if you're played for more than 30 seconds on streaming. Yeah. So if you skip before 30 seconds, nobody gets a penny. Mm. And you don't get paid a penny more for lasting a second more. So right, a rational yeah. economic person would write shorter songs and shove the chorus at the front. It makes yeah. sense. Now, that can cause a knee-jerk reaction of, oh my God, what is streaming doing to our, what's happening yeah. to culture? Pause, pull up a pint of Guinness, relax, and remind ourselves we've been here before. And here's a beautiful example for you. If you go back to the 1950s, jukeboxes, largely controlled by the mafia in America, they demanded songs and jukeboxes which could be no longer than two minutes, 30 seconds. Why? Because yeah. it maximized the revenue out of the jukebox. Now, what was the jukebox? as a way for paying for on-demand music, yeah. not that different from a Spotify subscription. So these things happen all the time. You know, they happen yeah. all the time. I think the reminder which helps people have confidence when feeling with disruption is the fact that we've been here before. I think these 
historical anecdotes have a really important role to play in giving us mm. confidence. Yeah, and there's loads of, as I said before, there's loads of lovely historical anecdotes about things that, you know, modern terminology that was that we know of now, but th- those behaviours and principles we should talk about Tupperware in a minute. Just on, on the shortening attention span for a second. So with a shorter attention span, and you say in the book it's impossible to be bored now because we have a phone in our hand all the time, but coupled shortening attention span with an oversupply of content, the ability for any company, business, product or services to, to get or hold our attention is becoming much, much um, harder as today. Um, and I know this more than anybody, that's the business I'm in trying to get that attention. So and when you think about media companies today, today, like built in the last 20 years, the Facebooks and Googles, they've done a really good job because they've built their entire business model on one of engagement. It's not, you know, copy sold. Uh, it is, it's based on engagement and that's how the whole thing works and signed in users and that. So they have a really attentive user. So talk, talk to me about this concept in the book about attention contestability and the idea of, you know, when we're all, everybody's vying and, and competing for our attention, but some things are complementary and some things are competing directly for that. attention. just talk to me about that for a second. Sure. Sure. I, I would like to wheel back just for a couple of minutes there, which is you talked about Facebook and Google briefly sort of, you know, competing for engagement and attention. I think it's important to maybe just reflect on the late 90s with the browser wars. If you think about Google was scaling up its business. Yahoo was the incumbent, the sort of early market adopter. And yeah, YouTube is competing, you know, Google, sorry, are competing for your attention. But, you know, back then... Yahoo, I was optimizing for in their browser wars, was keeping you on the browser yeah. for longer. So here's a search bar, here's Yahoo Finance, here's Yahoo Mail, here's a bunch of distractions. Mm-hmm. But somewhere in the middle of the screen was a search bar. Google actually did it the other way. They said, mm. you know, all we're going to give you is a blank search bar mm. and we want you to come to Google and get off Google as fast as possible. Can. Their KPI was least time as possible mm. is a good thing. Yahoo's KPI was most time on the vet browser is a good thing. Right, yeah. And we all know who ran those browser wars. And I think that... That raises an important nuance to this debate about attention, which is how do you become more attention efficient? Park that for a second. You asked about contestability. I think this is the big ticket item in the book. And I, I stress, you know, whatever you're doing, particularly in the world of marketing and advertising, optimize for attention as your base one before you pass go, before you collect 200 pounds, before you move to base two. And the contestability point is interesting. Vince Gilligan, the writer, producer of Breaking Bad, loves the book, which is an honor for me. But a funny backstory, I didn't actually know who he was when I was told this. So you're going to meet Vince Gillian. Uh, who's he? What did he do? Oh, he did break <laughs> like So I am desperately trying to finish the entire run of Breaking Bad. I'm on season four, episode 10 at the moment. So I'm giving two hours a night to Netflix to rewatch Breaking Bad for the first time. Mm. So that's two hours that Netflix gets of my media consumption clock, which is scarce. That means nobody else gets it. Spotify doesn't get it, Apple doesn't get it, Facebook doesn't get it, Google doesn't get it, which means everybody else has increasingly less time to compete for. And right there, you can see the dynamics of the scarcity of attention and when contestability picks in. If I use the alcohol reference of some forms of attention are gin and tonic, they complement one another. Perhaps running in music is a complementary way of spending your time. Uh, Other forms are substitutional. If Netflix gain means everybody else feels pain. And I think it's really important in the world of marketing and advertising, that you're just trying to draw a landscape of the attention battleground and work out who are your friends and foes here. I think the book does a great job of that. Thanks, by the way, to a really interesting framework offered by, you don't go to your national telecom regulator for inspirational information, but this Ofcom over here in the UK regulates telcos. And in 2010, mm. they published this attention framework in like page 96 of a PDF report no one ever read. And I can swear down Barely a meeting went past at Spotify without us discussing attention with respect to this long-forgotten framework in an Ofcon document. But it's a beautiful way of just thinking about how much importance do I place in activities and then how much attention do I give to these activities. Mm -hmm. So I can give, let's say, Netflix a lot of attention watching some documentary about tigers in captivity, but it's not that important. That's interesting. Mm. I can give something a lot of importance, but not apply that much intention. It's just a beautiful trade-off to kind of start thinking through those friends and foes in that battle for attention. It's crucial for marketing. I mean, yeah. this is base one. Yeah, yeah. And measuring, again, we, we just mentioned historical anecdotes there. And 
measurement, like we live in a, in, a, in a time where we can measure everything too much with too much data, but even it's fascinating because you talked about even we were always measuring attention. We were always looking for ways to measure it, even going back to public and um, when people are, you know, public speaking, those type of events and, and politicians addressing people. So, you know, the idea of how loud the clap was, was it was a measurement tool at that point. And rightly so, humans being humans, if there's a way to measure something, there's a way to game it. Uh, so, you know, mm-hmm. you would have had people going in and stooges going into the crowds and clapping and trying to, that infectious nature of somebody beside me is clapping and screaming, it must be great, I'll join in. So, uh, And that was the Rolling Stones, Andrew Lou Goldman, the manager, the original manager of the Rolling Stones was sitting at the back of the theatre and when the band came on, he would scream and all the yeah. girls at the front of the theatre would scream with him. And that's where that whole screaming, that's... Just like a baby cries, all of the babies yeah. around him will cry too. That emotional contagion is fascinating. It, yeah, it is. And but what was, what was amazing to me was that was that going because I think you know we can measure things at the moment and, and in the era of digital that we live in, where everything can be measured, and there, it's a huge issue in terms of my business, in terms of what we can do. You can have fraud, measurement fraud at scale, or mismeasurement at scale now in terms of what we live in. So I just want to talk to you about that for a second because when mm. you think about and we mentioned Google and Facebook, they they come up quite a lot in this podcast. So good and bad, but like the idea that they're self-contained kind of walled gardens so they they set the rules they mark their own homework they measure their own you know audience and, and we, we all just have to live with that but when we think about how, how dangerous is that first and foremost because it sounds like it can be open to a huge amount of um you know just gaming the system like we saw they've, it's like they've got thousands of people in their own room clapping and cheering they can game that system completely so how dangerous is that and you know when we think about how important those people are in terms of they can shape an agenda, they can influence elections, that kind of thing. So what are your thoughts on that whole area? That's a a broad question. I'll give you one side of sort of exploring the risk, then one side of exploring the benefit. So on the risk, I'll go back to the 1700s to a Scotsman, uh, no relation, called John Law, Mm -hmm. who ironically was an alcoholic gambler who was on the run from a murder charge in London, disappeared to Amsterdam and worked his way into Paris and famously, uh, he became the head of the Central Bank of France, the head of the Treasury, and the head of the stock market. Mm. There's a, I'll hop, skip, and jump this story. But it's a remarkable story. There's a great book called The Moneymaker, uh, which you can read on him. But he was responsible for the first ever stock market bubble, which was you know to do with the cotton fields in the southern United States. And you know those cotton fields weren't actually there, so we were investing in a bubble, and the stock market got itself into a lot of trouble. What was interesting was he had a a closed loop as it was between the treasury, the central bank and the stock market. So he set his own rules within these three agencies. And all I say there is you may want to step back and think, why is it in our current institutional framework, these three institutions are you know, kept separate? Mm-hmm. I think there's a, a parallel there that you could apply to the debate about platforms. Mm-hmm. But then on the, on the positive side, there's a fundamental point I make in the book, uh, which is today's monopolies and in every interview I've done today, it's always been the use of the word, plural word, monopolies, which I find an oxymoron. Like, yeah. you're surrounded by all these monopolies. <laughs> Sounds pretty like competitive market yeah. to me. Like, why can we use this plural? Why is there more than one monopoly? Is this, we're doing damage to the definition. But all these monopolies that we're talking about today do not behave like the monopoly we're taught in textbooks at university today. Yeah. So if you were studying economics at Trinity in Dublin or LSE, you would be taught that a monopoly reduces output and increases cost, just yeah. like Adam Smith predicted in 1784. These monopolies, plural, these monopolies do not do that. They expand output and reduce or eliminate costs. I'm sorry, it's just mm-hmm. a blatant observation, but I have never given Google or Facebook a penny of my money. Yeah. I give telcos a lot of my money and the damn things don't work half the time. Yeah. So... Um, it's just interesting to think about monopolies in the plural sense competing for convenience to win customer attention as opposed to competing on costs. Yeah. And all I say there is I think you just have to take a deep breath and realize that the textbooks that we're using to perhaps attack or regulate or speculate about what we should do next are quite simply not fit for purpose. Mm-hmm. You just cannot fit that square peg in a round hole anymore. doesn't necessarily mean they're right or wrong. just means that we're coming from the wrong starting point. Or yeah. as the famous Irish tourist quote says, if you were to get somewhere, you wouldn't start from wouldn't here. start from here. Yeah. And, the, and the, the monopoly thing, I guess it just depends like on where you're coming from. So as a general consumer, like the things we have on our phone, the, the, the products we get from Google and the services mm-hmm. that we get, they're incredible. So 
I mean, just from, if you're looking at publisher's point of view or the ad industry's point of view, they're hard to compete against. But you know, and, we, and everybody gives out of it and saying they're taking far too much advertising revenue out of the market. But then again, the, the thing that I always say is that no one's forced to use them. And, and it's not the agency business that keeps them in business. It's the, it's the small, the SMEs, the small local businesses, the really long tail of those. And they're the people that have decided without any agency yeah. to, to not advertise in local newspapers and radio and spend on Google because even the self-serve tools that they have are just phenomenal. It's a complete free choice. But um, so it's an interesting point about because I would have always maybe said they're too big, they're anti-competitive because like even Facebook, like Facebook would be if, if it didn't own Instagram, it would be it'd be a wounded animal. And I I was said, like, would we be better off with a thousand billion dollar companies rather than one trillion dollar company? I just I don't know. But anyway, I, I see your point. Well, I take your point. Just on there. So there's something I introduced in the book when I discussed this, is called the strategy tax. And I just would love to your listeners to consider this, which is at what point do one of these plural again monopolies offer a competitor's product? over their own. Yeah. So you're seeing streaming services celebrate new integrations with the Apple Watch. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Shoes and shoe laces, you bundle the laces in with the shoe. We've got many different types of laces operating on the same shoe. If you remember lockdown last year, this time last year, it was easier to set up a Zoom call on Google Calendar than it was a Google Meet call. I found that fascinating because mm. Google realized video conferencing is going to explode and not everybody's on Google. So let's make Zoom the yeah. priority function over our own product. Mm. So this, again, is monopolies competing for convenience of the consumer, not marginal cost. There is no marginal cost in software. So what I spot there is that's how these big companies are playing. So they're competing for convenience. The more scale they've got, the more convenience they can offer. Would any regulator come up with such an innovative solution as that? Mm. Or is it better for the market to do it? So it's a very interesting question of what regulation can achieve. And I I cite uh, Screaming Lord Such, who is this eccentric politician, the Monster Raven Looney Party in the book. He was a wonderful character, well worth looking back on some of his old interviews. I think he lost 45 by-elections in total in his political career. But he always had this one beautiful expression, which is, we need two competition authorities. I always loved that because he's asking you to stop and think. I want to smash up monopolies. Well, perhaps I can... I've got a better idea. Why should you have a monopoly in upholding competition? Mm. And it's just very interesting to kind of apply a bit of monster raving loony party logic to this debate because so much of it gets lost, primarily because we've got frameworks that are completely outdated in today's marketplace. That's the problem. Yeah. Your background is Spotify. Tell me, like, why did Spotify work? Because it wasn't... You know, there was streaming, music streaming was going on. So what, what did Spotify do that got it right? Like, it would be unfair to say it was just a legal version of music streaming or, or MP3. So why did it get it right? How was it such a success? And, and how did it really capture on that attention that you talked about that's so valuable? So I think that you could ask 100 people at Spotify what was the secret source and get 100 different answers. Here's mine. Um, I think... The depth of catalog was one. Like you could go up to your parents and say, give me the most obscure song you can think of. Mm. And it's there. But it wasn't just, it was there. The depth of catalog, the long tail, the accessibility of the long tail was there. It was the speed to which you got it. And there's a fascinating backstory to this, which is, you know, back in the early days of building the client, there was a broad agreement that the play button on Spotify was too slow. Right. So you press the light switch, you know, like a bit of a pause and the light comes on. Whether the brain can recognize that delay is open to question, but it's it's not instant. Yeah. The point was this play button, if we're going to beat piracy, needs to make music feel like it's instantly available mm-hmm. on your laptop or on your phone. Which of you bright engineers is going to build me a better play button? Now, I'll paraphrase the story here, but one of those engineers in that horseshoe, you know, said, I'll take this one, you know, wandered off to the University of Stockholm psychology department, went up to some professor and said, What in metric terms does a human brain so declare as instant. Yeah. And the answer was 285 milliseconds. At that point, the brain can't see delay. Yeah. Goes off into a cave, eats cold pizza, drinks flat Coca-Cola for three months, and builds a play button that plays 285 milliseconds after you press play. Right. That's instant. Yeah. Now, I ask anyone, you can go to a piracy site like uTorrent, and you tell me whether you can get music faster than that. Yeah. It's not possible. Not possible. So, yeah, yeah. The vision was, if you can build something that's better than stealing, the people will come. They're not stealing because they want to stick it to the man. They're stealing yeah. because it's more convenient. We are yeah. competing, all these tech monopolies are competing for convenience. Mm-hmm. 
and getting the play button to play music like it was instant in metric terms, in psychological terms, mm. was a huge benefactor to saying, why on earth are you going to use torrent to steal music anymore? Yeah. And also, like, because, yeah, Spotify, there's just lots of things going on. But the, the brilliant thing about the book is it talks about these eight principles. And we're chatting about some of these now. But obviously, one key principle is the ability to draw a crowd, to talk about the importance of a crowd. So, and again, this is an area where even in our business, Mark, we've seen significant amount of democratization. So the, the model being that, you know, I, I have clients who need to connect with consumers. TV stations have consumers. They, they, they're engaged with them. I stitch advertising into their content and that's a, a trade-off people are willing, they're happy to make. And now you've got YouTube creators who've got far bigger audiences than, than the top rating shows in the UK or Ireland. They've got, they're putting out now, questionable content. A lot of it's rubbish, but that's not the point. They have an audience and they think it's good. So that has been democratized. But in terms of music, there's a brilliant story about, I suppose, a head-scratching moment for you um, in terms of a Megan Trainer track that you just couldn't understand. How did this happen? How did yeah. this catch on in so quickly in popular culture? So, and it really makes that point about, I think we weren't looking in the right place to see how we could measure how successful it was. Can you just give me that example for people? Because it's a brilliant, sure, it's a brilliant sure, example. Sure, sure, sure. So the transferable point here for every single person listening to the podcast is to look at the order of events of how things happen. In whatever business you're in, whether it's like the beverage industry, the hospitality industry, there'll be a marketing order of events. This is how we roll out a campaign. Mm. We start with billboards, then we go to newspapers. So in music, a classic order of events of how a hit would happen is you started with Shazam tagging, essentially hearing a song on radio, like the melody, Shazam tag it, and then you know, go to the shops and buy it or go to iTunes and download it. Uh, so you'd have radio first, Shazam tag second, purchasing and consumption third. That was the order of events we had for the best part of a decade, maybe even longer. So then along comes this hit called Megan Trainer, where the order of events is completely back to front. We can work it out. It started with Shazam tagging, yeah. then it went to streaming, then it went to sales, and then radio came a distant fourth. Literally four months after the tagging, yeah. radio started playing the song. So... One year, late 2014, I, I, I presented the case study, hugely informative. My passion is teaching economics. Everybody's learning. I'm happy. We're understanding how the order of events in marketing a song has changed. But for the year that followed, I kept on getting dogged with this question of that Megan Trainer case study. Great work, Will. Great work. But where were the tags coming from? Yeah, so mm. I have got sweet Foxtrot Alpha idea oh, yeah. of like how to answer this question. I just know tagging began the journey radio came last, not radio came mm. first, Shazam tagging came second. And then a year after, Emily French Blake, a real street smart Spotify, was you know, running around the world, launching a company in different continents. And she'd come back from Seattle and she'd be working with Starbucks in some sort of business joint venture partnership. And uh, she was working late in the office. And I just said, you know, don't work too late, Emily. And she's like, Paige, you got to come here and look at this. Like, what? I said, I'm just back from Seattle where I've been working with Starbucks. I said, I know, so don't work too late. You're on a different time zone right now. I said, no, 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 no. Look at my slide deck and I had all this red ink around Megan Trainer case study. What are you doing discussing my case study with Seattle's famous Starbucks Corporation? They're obsessed with it. Why? Because they were curating the song in their stores. My jaw dropped. It's like, go on, Emily. She said, no, no, no. They're convinced that the fact that they were playing the song in their stores led to the Suzanne tags, which then drove the sales and took the song to number one around yeah. the world. And I mean, it was a huge number one hit. So I, my gut reaction was, Emily, this is baloney here. Mm. Um, or what do you say in the West of Ireland? A gobshite. Yeah. You, this is... This doesn't make sense. Starbucks sells, in my opinion, poor coffee. It does not promote songs. Yeah. And then she flipped a slide and she said, well, Starbucks is the biggest radio station in America. They've got X, you know, 40, 50,000 stores, 30 million customers who all spend, think about attention to your earlier question, they all spend 30, 35 minutes queuing, ordering, receiving, and slurping their morning coffee. So I went back to Shazam and said, can we do some time of day analytics in these tags here? Can you tell me where time zone dependent the time of days was? And guess what? Yeah. 7.30 to yeah. 10.30 in the morning. I was like, boom. Yeah. Now we, we employ radio pluggers in the industry to promote songs on radio. We employ streamless pl streaming pluggers, I guess, to work songs onto playlists. Mm. But nobody employs a Starbucks plugger. Yet yeah. they were right. They're the biggest yeah. radio station in America. Means to an end. A crowd is a crowd wherever it can be drawn. And the lesson there is Starbucks is just as much a relevant crowd as radio, television, billboards, or any of the conventional forms. 
Yeah, and it's a brilliant story saying the book is full of those stories. One more, which I love, um, we hear about viral, and it is important, something has to go viral, it has to capture the imagination. I was loving The Apprentice when they're tasked with creating a viral video and they're the most horrendous looking things ever that they that they made because you can't plan for something to go viral, you know. Well, you can, sorry, but it's hard to deliver it what captures people's attentions. But there's a brilliant example of Tupperware, how, you know, mm-hmm. it had been tried to launch and it was launched with a top-down model. So we have this product. The way yeah. we always do, we have this product. Let's tell everybody in, in the States about it. Let's put it on television. It's going to change everyone's lives. It did nothing for sales. And yet what we know as a kind of what called a social influence campaign was really sparked that off. So talk to me about that briefly. So I think this is super relevant for your audience, which is thinking through top-down, that's, I guess, what you call it above-the-line types of marketing. Mm-hmm. So let's just splatter Dublin with billboards and see if people glimpse them and if that resonates with cadet influence a sale, versus bottom-up. Let's start with the actual consumers who are buying a product and get them to become the influencers. And if you think about social influencers, a huge thing right now in marketing is understanding the social influencer economy. And this plays to that, but... It, in 1948, Brownie Wise was a single mum and came up with an idea of how you could sell Tupperware better. Now, Tupperware, not the sexiest topic in the world. Turn those leftovers into makeovers was the old slogan, if you remember that one. Um, but at the time, all he had tried to do to sell Tupperware was top-down marketing. So posters in the store, posters on the street, that type of stuff. What she thought was, no, if I start Tupperware parties, intimacy, intimacy here, mm of let's say 15 mothers, um, all sharing use cases for Tupperware. I used it for this, I Mm. used it for that. You will sell more. And the Tupperware party network went viral across Mm. America. A bit like a sort of pyramid scheme, if that's the right word to use. But I mean, it was a pyramid scheme that clearly worked because there was rules. In her manual in 1948, she said, it may be conventional thinking that one-to-one selling will be more productive you will sell more Tupperware to a group than you would do individually because yeah. use cases are shared. Mm. Oh, I can use this for lunches. Oh, I can use this for another purpose. I can use this for this purpose. So that's very much like UGC content. Yeah. I mean, there's like billions of how-to videos on YouTube that are watched every day. Yeah. Very similar purpose. Show me how to use it. Don't tell me why I need to buy it. Show me how to use it and I'll work out what the marketing connection is going to be. And the other thing was like, she had this rule about, you know, within any group of 15 women at a Tupperware party, there was three people, a host, the organizer of the party, and the person who takes on the next one to ensure that the, the viral yeah. spread continues. She became the most successful businesswoman in America yeah. by thinking bottom up, not yeah. top down. Now, I'm not a marketing executive, but I see how that applies to the social yeah. media network. Whereas, you can pay for billboards if you want, but if you can get a social influencer to move that community, that intimate community that they own, yeah, you can have far more impact. Yeah, a lot it, we can learn. And a it's, lot we can learn. It's the same as a concept as like the micro influencers now that we see. So it's not quite one to one. I don't know with door to door salesman, you would imagine that's that was a model there, but but the kind of not quite a hybrid because it's closer to the Tupperware party is closer to one to one than it was you know one to many broadcast. But yeah, really. Just a, a brilliant example of all these things that happen that we think are new. We, we've digitized the behavior and scaled them up, but the fundamental thinking behind some of these things or the, the human principles that underlie them have been, you know, true forever because human beings don't change that much over time, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. So going back to measurement again, I love this point because I think we can do this a lot in our industry. We kind of get obsessed with measuring, looking at lots of data, spreadsheets that are thousands and thousands of lines and sales. You just get blinded by it. But I think you make a really nice point about measuring some things or the importance of some things that may not seem valuable and how you could make a decision based on data that could be the wrong decision. So the example I loved was, and there's plenty of them, was the the restaurant, you know, vegan dishes on on a restaurant menu. So Mm -hmm. you may say that a classic data dive would look at that and go, look, these things are costly, they're not selling, cost of ingredients are not selling through enough, let's make a decision to take them off the menu. And yet, when you think about it, again, it makes perfect sense, but you think this idea of catering to the niche, um, and you explain it really well in the book, is super important. So if, in that case, catering to the few is critical because it allows you access to other people. So just talk to me about that for a second. Yeah, I mean, the, the long tail theory suggests that you can kind of stack them high and sell them cheap, that a small number of items is going to make a disproportionately large amount of your sales base. And you could apply mm. that to a restaurant, which is the chicken dish, the steak dish, and yeah. the vegetarian dish. 
are going to dominate that restaurant. There may be 30 items on the menu, but those three will make up 90% of your business. But the point I make in the book is that's not how the world works. Yeah. If there's me, you, and eight friends going out in Dublin, and one has a particular preference for meals, it could be vegan, it could be religious, kosher, halal. It could be dietary requirements. You know, there could be allergies, something I'm very familiar with as well. If that one person can't dine at that restaurant because they don't serve that long-tail item, then neither can nine of their friends. So I use the ant colony example of the interaction between the ants as opposed to the colony as a whole is what you've got to get your head around. And I think it's a great example in in a world where we're trying to wrestle with what does diversity and inclusion really mean. And, you know, there seems to be a thousand definitions for each of those two words here. But, you know, it's very interesting to think through the value of long-tail content is affecting the head. Now, in music, I bet you that we have like a a 95-5 rule. That is to say that the top 5% of tracks or artists make up 95% of the demand. Oh my goodness, look at the inequality. But each of those people who are consuming hit content will all consume one or two songs down in the tail. Mm. Would they have entered the streaming service? Would they have entered the shopping mall, if we use Mm. that analogy, had that long tail content not been there? And I think... This is a beautiful way of looking at this is to look at what Amazon's doing with X-Ray, which is their IMDB integration, Mm. just how they're enriching video streaming because they've got that IMDB data backing it up to guide you through the long tail. I think that's a a really good example of, you know, I want to see a blockbuster movie, but who did the cinematography? Oh, this person. Well, what else have they done? And you start to explore. Let me wrap it up by saying this. It's easier to make money off the long tail right, yeah. than it is to make money inside the long tail. Yeah. And I think that's what these platforms have mastered. Yeah, and that's the thing that you can often miss that when you're looking at data in the in the, you know, in its cold, pure form. You can make yeah. you know, uninformed or ill-informed decisions. And then there's a, a chapter which again comes into this particularly interesting for uh, or relevant for media. So the chapter all around self-interest versus common good. So whether it's part, it's better to be a part of a collective or to go on your own. Um, essentially, now I think about Irish media brands today. Obviously, newspapers they're all competing against one another, and they can't get their head around how they could combine forces. But I really think they have to come together to join forces and become allies if they're going to do anything, to, you know, to protect ad revenue against Google and Facebook. But even TV stations, you know, how do you compete with, I say, little old RTE, how on earth do you compete with Amazon Prime, which is offering an, an amazing content business as a peripheral business to a retail experience online? This is just a byproduct of what they're doing. How do you compete mm-hmm. with that? So this idea that, I guess we've seen in other markets that, like, the new vine that newspaper, the, the old vine that say newspapers, because newspapers is easy one to, to think about. The vine that they're clinging onto is we sell a paper product um, for you know two euro every day. To that number is getting smaller and smaller. And the vine that I guess if I if I was to, if I'm reading the book, Tarzan, you can obviously find it that they should or that Spotify were swinging to was subscription. Like everyone sign up. So as a consumer, and I don't buy newspapers that often anymore. I look at them online. But th- to draw the same analogy. Why don't all the newspapers in Ireland come together or all the publishers come together, mm-hmm. throw all their inventory into this kind of collective subs mm-hmm. model? And then, you know, I'll just take the bit I want a little bit like I'm not going to buy the full album, but, you know, I might take a story here, a story there, and they get paid for that consumption. Now, that's quite a close analogy to what happened in music. So, what are your thoughts there? Do you think that's something that like local markets like Ireland, local publishers should be? Is that the vine they need to swing to? Going for a greater reach rather than. Yeah. I, I, if I was to say to the, the leading newspaper titles in Ireland or here in Great Britain, you should all collaborate, form a collective, newspapers to the right of the political spectrum, newspapers left, I would probably get chased down the street. It's like, what are you even saying? How dare you have the audacity to suggest that I sleep with the enemy? Yeah. Well, let me front up here for a second, which is what you've got right now is a business model that's caught like in the headlights. They just don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they've been doing for the past 10 years. Even the best newspapers are doing this, the Financial Times, which I subscribe to, has now introduced premium content after they got me in a subscription. Hold on, I signed a contract to get all the content on the Financial Times, and now you're playing bait and switch with me, saying I have to pay more to get premium content. Guess what I'm going to do? Not subscribe to the Financial Times anymore. So even those who are trying to execute well seem to be digging a hole for themselves. And let me just remind that the subscriber numbers for newspapers are really, really small. I think the FT is at a million, and we've got 460 million people paying for music that could otherwise get it for free. 
So just relatively speaking, what is deemed successful isn't that successful as well. Mm. But I just think if you're giving the customer friction, you will lose. Yeah. And if the newspaper, the act of holding a newspaper, who wants to smudge their fingers with ink anymore, is friction, then let's go to online. Just look at newspaper websites and you can see the problem. They're horrible places to go to. There's even companies starting up today which are offering to pay £5 a month to remove the adverts from newspaper websites. (laughs) You have a problem on your hands and there's entrepreneurs seeing a business model in taking adverts out of websites for a fee because they're so inconvenient. So I I simply say, could newspapers form a collective like Spotify did? Mm -hmm. And you pay one fee to remove all friction to access all of your news. If you're streaming Katy Perry, do you care that she signed to Sony? If you're streaming Taylor Mm -hmm. Swift, do you care that she signed to Universal? No. You just want to explore content. And I want to explore your authoritative rugby journalism. So Mm. give me a platform where I can get all the best writers, bring it all about the best rugby games around the world from one place. The money is there if the friction is not. Yeah. And it's very hard to see these businesses entrenched and holding on to that old vine to let them realize that friction needs to be killed. Mm. And what they're doing is creating more friction. You're mm. born to lose down that model. So I'm quite passionate about this point, And I see it not just in newspapers. I almost feel like I'm isolating one industry. But so many other industries believe yeah. that friction is going to get them out of their mess. No, friction digs you into a deeper mess. Yeah. And again, it might be a leap of faith. But I think the way you put it in the book was that newspapers, and understandably so, look, they're worried about the people that they have protecting the people that they have to pay full price for the product, service, subscribe, or what. How but, many, though? Yeah, That's exactly. You think music. about, like... How many? Are that, you telling me that a million subscribers to the best broadsheet financial newspaper is a success? A yeah. million? Yeah. In Britain, there's, I think, 24 million people subscribing to music services. And you yeah. always have done, and you always will be able to get music for free. Yeah, it's just crazy that that's deemed successful. I totally agree, and the idea would be, well, that and that is, you know, people paying full price or paying you know, a price for to buy the full paper. Most people are to just read the bits they want. So the idea of saying, well, let, let's not worry about the small amount of people that we have. Let's worry about the people that we don't have, which is growing every year. So right, it would right. make sense Echo, to exactly perfect example of CD model. You're asking me to pay twelve ninety nine for a CD, to which I'll break my nails trying to open, listen to one or two songs, and throw the rest in the car. You know, yeah. boot and never play it again. Is that a great model? Oh, I'm making lots of money. No, yeah. no, no, no. You're introducing friction. And yeah. in today's environment, where these tech monopolies uh, compete for convenience, friction is how you're going to lose. Yeah. And I just think it's like, sorry, you've tried idea after idea after idea. You're bleeding cash. Yeah. You're in a cul-de-sac, pull out and find another route. Yeah. This, is, this is not working. I definitely think in that case, the collective and If, the if collective you don't mind, I want to just give you one very, very important example. And again, I'll use music as a microcosm here. But in music, we have in the past two years, and especially during lockdown, seen an explosion in DIY artists, particularly using a platform called DistroKid, D-I-S-T-R-O-K-I-D. If there's any parents listening with kids who are budding musicians, okay. that's the most popular one. Fixed fee, $20 a month. a year, sorry, you retain 100% of your copyright, you see 100% of your revenues. Right. No 36-page record contract, three bullet points. Yeah. And they are responsible for about a third of all music being circulated on streaming platforms around the world now. They have 78 staff. So we are seeing direct creator-to-consumer developing music. Now, let's follow this. Let's say I am the editor-in-chief of a newspaper and you're a high-profile journalist. And for whatever reason, I decide to fire you. Ten years mm. ago, you would have been toast. Who mm. else would employ you? Your damaged goods. Yeah. Today, you can roll over to Substack, set up your own micro-subscription site, write about whatever you want, monetize it far better, and see more of that money than you would have done working for the man back at the business. Well, what's not to like? Yeah. So, again, the components that make up the newspaper industry are presented with options that eliminate friction. The consumers that used to read the newspapers have options that eliminate friction. And what do the newspaper models seem to be doing? Yeah. Introducing more friction. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It really is. It's probably the best example of, you know, you need to swing to a new vine. I can understand the discomfort with it, but like, I always think it's easier to take a chance when clearly the way you're doing it isn't working. It's hard if it's kind of not dead yet. The model's not completely broken. But I would say there's got to be, I would, and definitely even in terms of the scale that goes with a single logged in user that you could, Irish news brands and, you know, they'd have to all come together. They all have very different opinions of their importance in the world. That would be a struggle, but definitely a bit like the analogy when you say you leave that kind of 
management and, and the divvying up the revenue, fighting, squabbling, back a house, and you, the waiter is the kind of person, you know, in the restaurant analogy, the waiter's the person that kind of seamless experience to the consumer, and you worry yeah. about the fighting with the chefs that goes on in the background. We figure that out later, and that's I'll a bit of... the convenience, not yeah. the content. The content's irrelevant. Just give me convenience, and you'll get a much bigger check. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Pivotal thinking is another chapter in the book. And again, I, I love it. I kind of read it before. I think it was Rory Sutherland said it. Like, there's this concept that we think we're rational and most of the persistent problems that we face, if they could be solved by rational, logical thinking, they wouldn't be still persistent. So it's, again, it's really obvious, but I think there's some lovely examples of pivotal thinking and, and I'm a big fan of pivotal thinking and illogical thinking that you have in the book. So can you give me some of those examples just to, to whet the appetite for some listeners to get them interested in terms of that, that whole section, how important it is? Well, one example from music, which I'm beginning to see everywhere I look, is what I call a a willingness to pay for the thrill of a bargain mm. and also a willingness to pay for the thrill of a luxury and a complete disregard for anything stuck in between. I'll give you a quick example. If you think about $9.99 for all you can eat music service, it's been $9.99, by the way, since 2002. That's when Rhapsody got licensed in America. So we're almost two decades into the same price point. And back then they had 2 million songs. Today there's 70 million songs. So you're getting more for your same money. Uh, by the way, the, the 999 price point dates back to uh, the original argument for how to price a streaming service was you have to match the cost of a blockbuster video rental card. Right. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Okay. That, right? No complex econometrics required. Just if it costs £10 a month to rent movies, that's what it'll cost to rent music. So it is a bargain at £10 a month. Mm. It's a real bargain. It's an even bigger bargain than two, three people using a family plan at £15 yeah. a month. So... You know, we have a bargain on our hands and people are willing to pay for that. They're also, and the same people, this is important, are paying for vinyl. Vinyl today yeah. is the second biggest line item in the British music industry. Yeah. Crazy, right? Yeah. Bigger than CDs, cassettes, downloads, and any other form of streaming combined in terms of the revenues to the record labels. And it's 2021. So I'm willing to pay 10 quid a month for everything you can eat. That's a bargain. I'm also willing to pay £25 a month, potentially with postage and packaging, to get that beautiful vinyl, which I may or may not actually open, but I own it, ownership. But if you want me to pay for anything in between, to hell with you. Now, I'm seeing that from a marketing-based audience here. I'm seeing that everywhere. Um, people who shop at Aldi and Lidl will get the thrill of a bargain, buying an olive oil, which is rated really highly, but costs less than £3. Yeah. But they'll also go to Waitrose or some upmarket butchers yeah. to buy their meat but they're not going to go to Tesco's or yeah. Sainsbury's, stuff in between. And this partition of the waves, aviation up until lockdown, similar story. Low-cost carriers, particularly in America and Europe, mm -hmm. absolutely crushing it. High-cost carriers, if that's the right term, mm -hmm. Emirates, uh, Singapore Airlines, crushing it. But what you didn't want to be was British Airways, in the, the world's 26th favourite airline, I think, in the yeah. current rankings, yeah. or Cathay Pacific, those, those jumbo jets in between. They, they're the ones who are losing out. So this, this partitioning towards the extremes, I think is a really interesting observation for marketing to explore. Yeah. It's the same people buying both. Yeah, and, and it seems to be contrary to logic and how we expect people to behave and, you know, e econom economics and models and think about people. People are not rational people. We're definitely not rational people. Sure, I know in terms of advertising, you know, even branded water is just one of the things that if we if you can do that, you really are, you're showing the, the, what was um, it? how illogical people are. It, Evian spelt backwards spells naive. I think that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's a great, but it's really well made in the book. And of course, and it, uh, there's quite a lot in the book, but like, I, I won't keep it too much time. We just want to pick off a couple of, of other thoughts on it. Um, we spoke about data and measurement earlier on, and it runs through the book. And there is, I think it's a final chapter called Big Data, Big Mistakes, which again, just brilliant. Lots of really great insight in that. There is a thing I covered this a couple of weeks ago about machine learning and, and how we, we trust the machines and that, you know, we've all got bias. But the point you're making about with AI, of course, it's going to be pre-biased because it's, it's it, the human beings set the logic decision coding and the hierarchy of decision making. So there can be bias built into machine learning. So what are your thoughts on that? Because increasingly the world and particularly my business and our industry is moving towards machine learning and automation and, and doing that at scale, which, which is great, has yeah. advantages. But you say there are some potential big issues with big data. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I'm just using that chapter to, I mean, A, firstly, just acknowledge the progress of big data. Phenomenal. Mm. Uh, I think I stressed from the outset, if you search book titles with big data on Amazon, I think there's 9,000 books mm. available with big data in the title. That's crazy. 
many mm. how many book titles have got big mistakes immediately after that? So I, I just yeah. want to swing the pendulum back towards common sense. It's what big data doesn't give you. I mean, we've got to remember, and I know you're a huge fan of Rory Sutherland, and I quote him in this chapter, which is, we sometimes forget that all big data comes from the same place. To which most data scientists think, where, where? Show me a show me a tableau dashboard. Show me yeah. no. It comes from the same place, which is the past. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. If all big data comes from the past, do we just need to kind of level set for a second and just you know sprinkle a couple of grams of common sense onto the onto the mix? And you know, think about machine learning. My favorite example is if you think about how machine learning forms pattern recognition and you know infers from patterns. If AI machine learning was to observe that if there's a tragic car crash, there'll be a group of people standing in a semicircle observing it, it would assume that people love standing in semicircles observing yeah. tragic car crashes. Yeah. You know, this is a positive indicator. Yeah. And that would be a great example of just where things can go wrong when you're inferring from patterns without context. That's the key thing. And I, I stress in sort of publishing the book, and I've done, you know, met so many sort of C-level executives. You know, do you know where your customer support team are? Mm. No, we outsourced that to yeah. somewhere Cambridge. Would you like to even go there? And hey, how about this for a revolutionary idea? Listen to the consumer, yeah. as opposed to the data points they're creating. Yeah. And most people kind of look at you baffled when you suggest that. So what, I, what I did at Spotify was sit on, you know, hear the phone calls coming in when people yeah. are struggling with Discover Weekly or, you know, trying to understand the family plan dynamics. And, you know, listening to consumer reveals data points that no dashboard could ever plot. Yeah, it's a great point. And you talk about it, the importance of measuring the zeros, which is kind of that point and we've touched mm-hmm. on earlier on. But you put it really simply in terms of two employees who have different jobs. We just run through that because I thought it was really well made. Yeah, I think I've got a lot of admiration for the comms departments in companies as an economist who will wave his hands in the wear and use all sorts of jargon, which thankfully I've kept out of the book. You need somebody clever in comms to be able to kind of convey that message to a broader audience. I've learned so much from working with people in the comms, the PR and comms teams and companies. But it always strikes me as this, there's two types of people that take this role. And this applies for just about every role in business. Let's stick with comms for a second. There are those who are charged with creating positive headlines. Mm. So we've got great quarterly earnings. And my job is to sell that story to Bloomberg, the FT, and so on. And tomorrow we'll be all over the papers. We're up 20% on sales. Yeah. Then there's those people who are responsible for stopping bad things from happening. So there's a bit of an issue in the workforce. A bit of tension with some new contract, and there may be a little bit of a scandal going on, and their job is to manage that story down. Now, it's very easy to measure what people achieved. Yeah. Wow, you're responsible for great quarterly earnings. Well, how hard is it to sell a story of good news when you've got good news to sell? Mm. But then there's those zeros, people who are harder to count, which is those who prevent bad things from happening. And I remember back when I was a government economist, I got an appraisal once, and it started off with, Will, you achieved nothing last year. God, <laughs> about to get a one-star review and demoted. Where's this going to go? And he said, but you prevented that stupid health bill from ever seeing the light of day. You prevented the minister from looking like mm. an idiot and using night. You prevented all these bad things from happening. Have five stars and heal your promotion. Right, yeah. But it was just interesting to think about, is your role to achieve things in the firm or is your role to prevent things? And if you're a one, that is, I can account achievements, yeah. then the system is biased towards what you will achieve because it's easy to count. If you're a zero, which is your job is to prevent, then you're going to suffer from that bias because it's easier to ignore. Yeah, and there's loads of brilliant examples of how, you know, data... And and the danger is we do have so much data and we can drown in that data that there's so many ones to look at and insights or hypotheses to to draw upon looking at all the ones. Um, It's very easy to forget about the zeros but you think that's really really important and it's a great point and it's really well made in the book just one last point which is about you, you made it earlier on but I mean I think again just in marketing we are obsessed with fast data data that happens in real time and it, it's the, the data that is the output mm-hmm. of, of behavior and I think there's been a shift I'm not sure it's kind of swinging back a little bit but like slow moving data research talking to people focus groups um, you know listening to what people are saying which is fewer it's lost a bit of it, it seemed really like, oh God, no one wants to be doing that. That's really old fashioned. And that's dangerous, isn't it? It's really dangerous to kind of go to two footed into real time, fast moving data. Because as I say, as you said earlier on, it, 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 everything's from the past and it doesn't get to the heart of what the really important thing, which is people. Yeah, I mean, like, 
in music, we've had this this challenge as we've adapted to the new vine of streaming, which is instead of like putting a, a record out, and by the way, we still use this language of I'm putting a new record out. Yeah. What? Into space? Yeah. What's going to happen? Some hocus pocus. Some, you put a record out into space and through some magic money comes back. Now you're engaging with your consumer with consumption. And it was interesting on, on Sunday, um, Bloomberg ran a story about Universal Music Group's future IPO. It's going to happen later this year on the Amsterdam Stock Exchange. They brought back up this Imagine Dragons case study I did in 2017. Mm. And I still think in terms of my professional career, it's the biggest achievement to date was this case study. To work with Universal's Gary Kelly, who is the label representative of the band, the band themselves who are fully on board. But what we wanted to challenge was this concept that we have in music and every other industry will have this, which is you have a rule which detects, you know, you're marketing the new stuff and your colleague, not as high up as you in the food chain, they market the old stuff. They get the drip tray of whatever we're rolling out. So we call it catalog. We say 18 months after a record is released, it's frontline. We proactively create demand with marketing. Then after 18 months, it becomes catalog. And we hand it off to the bargain bin team in the basement. And they just respond to demand. Maybe it gets used in a TV commercial or a movie or something, but we're not going to create demand. That's transferable to just about every other business, that kind of rule of what is old and what is new. Now, with streaming, the thing is that instead of front-loaded sales that decay over time, where all the action happens in the first two or three weeks of release, it's back-ended consumption that grows over time. Yeah, That changes everything. And with Imagine Dragons, they did pretty well in streaming in their first 18 months of their debut album. In their second 18 months, after it was catalogued, after you would have had to give up on the record, yeah. it did 177% more streams. Right, you know, yeah, yeah. More than double close to treble the amount level of streams. That's staggering for a band after the 18-month rule kicked in that the streams actually exploded and got even bigger. And Gary Kelly had this great expression, which is that the music industry has to change from being a sprinter to a marathon runner. Mm-hmm. Had they given up on Imagine Dragons... On the 17th month, they would have had that meeting and said, you know, how is this yeah. record doing? Are the numbers that good? Well, it's okay, but given the level of investment, it's not paying dividend. Yeah. Let's just drop it. And you can imagine the same conversation having in a marketing yeah. budget. Of we really pushed this product line and it just didn't quite take off, so we'll pass it and move on to something else. Mm. Had they dropped Imagine Dragons, they would have dropped A, the most successful rock band on streaming in the United States of America, and B, and this is exclusive for you, 43.6 billion streams to date. Right. Wow. Yeah. Around the world. 43.6 billion mm. from a band that didn't make it work in the first 18 months, but exploded in the second 18 months. And you months. think you think about how many, how many artists, you know, just got disillusioned that didn't make it like yeah. years ago. How that, many you know, artists get the chop because yeah. of this weird rule? By the way, do you know where that rule comes from? No. It's crazy. So the catalog rule, and this is, I want to make this transferable to a marketing audience, which is when you have these rules in business, it does no harm to raise your hand, be the dumb kid in the classroom and say, yeah. what is the origin of this rule that we're going to market goods by? You know, where, yeah. where, I get the rule, but tell me, where did it come from? What's the origin? What's the root cause of determining this is black, this is white, this is mm. how we do business? And uh, with, with the 18-month catalog rule, it actually goes back to 1991, and a band called Meatloaf. Right. So back then, the entire American population was replacing their vinyl collections with CDs. And everybody had to replace the 1977 Jim Steinman classic, Bad Out of Hell, which they had as a vinyl record, yeah. the CD. Which meant that Meatloaf kept on being at the top of the charts. And the chart companies panicked. They said, wait, charts are to promote new music, not yeah. champion old music. And we can't get Meatloaf off the top of the charts. So this replacement cycle of format change. <laughs> So we'll invent this rule, which is if you're more than 18 months old, you're no longer chart eligible. Right. Okay. That's where that came from. This is now, and we're dealing with format changes. It's ironic that such a weird story kind of raises its ugly head again of, now we have another format change in our hand, and we have these rules we need to adapt to continue. We have to let go of that old vine to to recoat tars and economics and reach out to a new vine of a different way of measuring consumption over time. Yeah, it's amazing. And as I say, the book is full of those type of brilliant stories. Um, I, I couldn't recommend it highly enough to anyone listening. So whether you're in economics uh, or not interested in economics, if you, it's just a really entertaining book. So, Will, we're out of time. Thank you so much for making the time and joining me today. I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed the book and I really enjoyed the chat. So we, are you going to do another book, do you think? Or has that... 
I'm just knee deep in like rolling this one out. Yeah. Just now. I can't really think beyond because uh, it is so staggered. Like the yeah. UK launch, US launch, Germany, Korea, Japan, translation rights all sold. I'm completely out of my depth here on how this world works. So it's it's a long game. So I just need to get through the end of it. What I am pleased is we sent a hard copy to Dolly Parton. Yeah. So as far as that's considered, you when, made when she requests a copy of your book, your job is officially done. So if I don't sell a single more copy, I'm happy with that. I hope she paid for it. I hope she didn't ask for free. I hope she paid for it, did she? Yeah. I mean, God, people with money, you know, the more the people with money are the ones that want freebies. So no, but that's great. It's been, I wish it huge success with it. It is a great book. Thanks Listen to it. And if people are interested in finding out more like obviously it's available in all formats and amazon and or is it you are i presume you're available everywhere i would expect to find good books we got we got the website tarsaneconomics.com set up and that's theirs resource and when we built the website just to stress that the freya rose tanner who built my website said who's your primary audience for this website and i said students she said, really? So, yeah, I, anybody who's studying media yeah music economics disruption marketing, anyone studying, yeah. those, those students today who are the executives of tomorrow, I just want to stress that website is a treasure trove of resources to help them. The executives mm. as well, but I'm interested in the future. I'm yeah. interested in where the puck is going or where the puck is at. Yeah, cool. Okay, well, thank you so much, Will, and thanks for joining me, and stay safe. And that's it. That's all she wrote. So I just want to say thank you so much, Will Page, for joining me today. I said it numerous times in the podcast, but the book is called Tars and Economics, and it's a great read. You don't have to be an economist. Um, you just have to be interested in a brilliant storytelling and, uh, you know, people, how they make decisions. So thanks, Will. Um, thanks to our partners, as always, the Irish Times Media Solutions. Um, thanks to Andrea on Sound, and thanks to Kira in Marketing. Until next time, stay safe. Bye-bye. Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.